I bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every great path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We shall continue from where we stopped last week as we look at what the scriptures say about Christian baptism. We began to look at this subject matter as we considered some case studies or practices which some consider to be baptism. In looking at these case studies, we wanted to ask if they qualified as Christian baptism. We looked at the case of the baptism of infants. We looked at the shuffling of teenagers by their parents so that they can be baptized before they go off to college or secondary school, sometimes even go off to university overseas. We looked at the case of people getting baptized so that they can be wedded in a church or even so that they can be considered as members of the church that they already attend. And we wondered if that is what baptism is about. And finally, we looked at the case of people having been baptized in one church and then moving to another church, either by reason of having gotten married or by reason of relocation based on work or movement from one place to the other, and then being told in the new church that they've gone to that they have to be baptized afresh. And so we wondered if baptism is tied to a particular local assembly with such cases and more, our approach was to deal with the issue from the scriptural perspective, which we said ends every dispute. The Bible says that the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. And we made clear that the scriptures will be those two or three witnesses. The scriptures that will provide the verses that will open our eyes to these things. And we noted that there is no passage of scripture that is subject to private interpretation. We must allow scripture to interpret itself. Thus, last week, talking about infant baptism and shuffling of teenagers, we know that the prerequisite for baptism in water, which is what Christian baptism is about, is that a person must first be born again. A person must first be born from above, must be born by the Spirit of God. He must be born again. He must have experienced a heart conviction and have made a mouth confession. The Bible says, with a heart man believeth, and with the mouth he makes confession unto righteousness. So there must be the heart conviction. He's convinced that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world and indeed the Son of God and makes that his confession, not just something he mouths, but a confession that he is attached to. So if that be the case for prerequisite for Christian baptism or water baptism, it goes without saying that you cannot be baptizing an infant. You probably poured water on the infant or something, but you didn't baptize that infant. That's not baptism because the person must know what he is doing. The person must be born again before that can happen. The same goes for teenagers who are being shuffled to go and be water baptized when they have not made that confessional statement that they want to become children of the living God. We also said that baptism on the basis of somebody just merely attending your church is negated by that. The fact that you are attending the church does not mean that you are born again. After hearing the message of salvation, the word about the Lord Jesus Christ, you must consciously decide that being a sinner, you need salvation, you need a savior. And Jesus Christ is that savior. It's something that you do as a result of having heard the gospel. I used the illustration of a young man and a young lady discussing marriage. They want to get married and what they want to do in future and things like that. That discussion by itself does not mean that they are married. It's just a discussion until they are joined together. Then you can say 
a marriage has taken place. Merely having a premarital discussion, even if there is premarital sex involved, does not mean that you are married. In the same way, going to church does not automatically confer on you the status of one who is born again. Being born again is something that you must do consciously. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was a ruler of the synagogue. He was not just a member of the church. He was not just attending church. He was the ruler. He was like what you can call the pastor. Yet he was not born again. And the Lord told him, you must be born again if you are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then we discussed Christian baptism as depicting the union of the person being baptized with Christ, thus making that person a part of the church. Christian baptism has to do with being a part of the body of Christ, the church of the living God. It means that you are not baptized with water here and then you move to another place and you are baptized. No, you are baptized with water once and it is universal. As long as it is the church of the living God, anywhere in the world. You are water baptized, you are water baptized. You don't do it twice, which is also another reason why it is something that you need to understand why you are doing. You don't do it like a discipline. It's a decision that you make. Now, I agree that there are churches, in quotes, that are actually pseudo churches. They are not really churches. Some people say what they do, they have a prayer meeting or a prayer ministry. We are not talking of that. We are speaking here of the church of the living God. Even a prayer ministry or a prayer meeting where you are taught and growing in the Lord, you have a relationship with God. In that kind of a situation, once you are baptized, you are baptized. But if it is a pseudo church, which is not really a church, just some people trying to use the name of Jesus to earn something, and then you go there and you say you are water baptized, of course you are not water baptized. A sound minister of the gospel would reject such a baptism because it will not be a baptism. You just went and, and took a bath. More so when you are not born again. What we are saying is that you cannot, as a church, institute a church policy that people who come to your church must be water baptized in that church if they are to be considered a part of the church. No, God has not given that authority to any one church on the earth. The church of God is the church of God all over the earth. And he has allowed as many, he says, go ye into all the world and make disciples and be baptizing them. So it's for everybody. He didn't mention the name of a church. What is important is that were you born again before you were baptized? The gathering where you were baptized, can we say that it's scripturally the church of the living God? Is it a place where Christ is taught as one that we believe in by faith and live by and where the Holy Spirit is considered the one in charge, as it were, giving direction and leading. Then you were baptized in a church, and that baptism would stand. We said that merely invoking the baptismal formula, the pronouncement, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, upon somebody does not confer on that person the fact that he has been baptized. You can dunk somebody into water and tell him, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean anything. A person is not baptized if is not born again, if the person who is doing the baptism is not a sanctified vessel in the hands of the Almighty God. Having promised to discuss this issue of the baptismal formula further, we will now start from that in this broadcast. So let's begin at Matthew chapter 28, from verse 18 through to verse 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So after the Lord Jesus Christ had resurrected, he came to his disciples and he said, look, all power on earth and in heaven has been given to me. So you go based on this authority that I have and make disciples of all nations. Baptize these disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And even after that, teach them everything that I have commanded you to do. When we look at that statement by baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one of the very curious things that you will notice is that there are no punctuations. It's just a straight sentence. So what does that statement mean? It's going to form the bulk of what we want to discuss today. When we look at the statement in the name, the tendency is for us to think that we are speaking of by the authority of. But the Lord Jesus Christ had made mention in verse 18 that all authority had been given to him. So he was not asking anybody to be baptized by the authority of. In fact, a further probing into that phrase in the name of would lend us to understand some things. In is basically the word into, something that you dip into. Remember, we're talking about baptizing them. So baptizing, the word baptism has to do with dipping, immersing, submerging something into something. So it's not just baptizing them in, it's baptizing them into then the name, we said it's not authority, but that word name speaks of the character of the person, speaks of the identity or personality, or more importantly, the very essence of that being that you are baptized into. So when we speak of baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, we are speaking of dipping them, immersing them, submerging them in water as a token. Remember we had said when we began this discussion of baptism, when we spoke of baptism in a generic form, you refer to water baptism or Christian baptism. So when we began to discuss this issue of baptism, we spoke about submerging someone into something. And we said Christian baptism is a physical act that represents a spiritual truth. So when he says baptizing them into, he's saying the physical act of baptizing them in water is a token or a representation of a spiritual truth of baptizing them or dipping them or immersing them or submerging them into the essence of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are going to spend some more time on looking at this. And we'll begin to see from here that there is more to that baptism than just reciting the words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the same phrase is used by Paul when he made a particular statement. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let me just read it for a fuller understanding and it will help us to get a better understanding. From verse 10 through to verse 13. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. So he's speaking of a division that was taking place in the church where people were saying, I belong to this, I belong to this group, I belong to that group. And they say, no. In fact, when you read Galatians and it speaks of party spirit or strife, he's speaking of this kind of thing where people are ganging up and saying, well, I belong to this group. I am of this group. I am of that. And we are seeing that kind of division. He says, no, 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 no. Denominationalism is not scriptural. It is man-made. 
and it is causing division in the church. Baptism is actually about the union of the Christian with the Godhead. And we are going to see that as we go on. So in verse 13, it now says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So we see that baptized in the name of. He said, were you baptized in the essence of Paul? Was Paul the essence into which you were baptized? Was it his nature that you were brought into? His character, his personality that you were brought into? The same scripture in the Good News Bible. Let me read verse 12 and 13. He says, let me put it this way. Each one of you says something different. One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. And another, I follow Christ. Some say, oh, I'm Catholic. I'm Anglican. I'm Pentecostal. And even amongst the Catholics, some say, I'm charismatic Catholic. If you come to the Pentecostals, you now have different names. Oh, I'm of this group. I'm of that group. This is my pastor. And we're having divisions. And so in verse 13 in the Good News, it says, Christ has been divided into groups. We have divided Christ into groups. Was it Paul who died on the cross for you? Was it your general overseer who died on the cross for you? Was it the Pope who died on the cross for you? Was it the bishop who died on the cross for you? What are we doing? Were you baptized as Paul's disciples? So to be baptized in the name of someone is like saying you have now become a part of that fellow. That person is the one leading you and you are following his leading, not just his teachings. You are following that person as God. That's basically what it is about. It's not about following a person. It's following a personality, an essence that is greater than you, far greater than you. This is deeper than human leadership. If we want to extrapolate what Paul is saying here when he said, were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's also speaking about our devotion or dedication. Were you devoted to Paul by baptism? Were you handed over to Paul by baptism so that through him, your life, can be spoken of. Did you bind yourself to Paul and give yourself away to him, as it were, by an oath? Did you do that? Was that what you did when you came to Christ? And since that is not what we did, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is speaking of our devotion to the Godhead, giving ourselves to the Godhead, handing our lives over to the Godhead. It's speaking of a declaration of loyalty and allegiance to the Godhead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, an allusion is made to this when the Bible says, let me read from verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. I think we mentioned this in the earlier discussions that we had on baptism, that when we're talking of baptizing into someone as a person, we are speaking of Israel here now in this particular context where they were united and bound to Moses as their leader, as their lawgiver, as their teacher. But Moses himself told them that there is going to be one among you, a prophet. He will be like me, but he's a greater prophet. Anybody that doesn't listen to him will be put to death. And that prophet was the Lord Jesus Christ, which was what we heard Andrew say when he went to call his brother Peter and say, we have found the one whom Moses spoke about, the prophet that is to come. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by what the Bible tells us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Israel accepted and acknowledged Moses as their leader, as their lawgiver, as their teacher. Israel accepted it. So when we talk of baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we are saying that we acknowledge, we accept that the Godhead have now become our head. 
They have now become the ones who will tell us what to do and we will do. That's what we are saying in baptism. So it's not a baptismal formula in the sense of an invocation. No, it is actually a declaration that we are making. So when the person baptizing is making that pronouncement, what he is actually doing is making a public declaration on our behalf, which is what we are saying. And we are going to dig a little bit further on that. If we go to the Gospel of John 17, when the Lord was about to go to the cross, he prayed a prayer for his disciples and for us also who will come in future. And I'll read from verse 20. It says, I do not pray for these alone, that is the ones who were present at the time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, you and I, that they all may be one, that we all will be united, the church will be united. You see how it tallies with what Paul was writing about. I hear there are divisions. There's no division in the church. Men may want to divide the church, but the church is not divided. The church is one. You may insist that you don't want anybody to come and speak to your congregation. If they are not your congregation, if they are your congregation, then they are not the congregation of God. But if they are children of God, God will speak to them. You are not the only one who will speak to them. God has a way of speaking to his children. So let's stop getting caught up on this whole thing of, ah, it's my church. These are my children. This, no, it's not necessary. We're just getting into wrong things that we have no business getting into. So in verse 21 again, it says, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The way we are together, the way we are one, I pray that they all will be one, that they also may be one in us. So it's not just the Father and the Son being one and the Christians being one, but that all these ones will be one, that the world may believe that you sent me. What is the world to believe here? Because when the world sees the kind of bonding and the kind of union and unity in the church, they will know that this can only be God. It can only be God doing this. I heard that in the early days when Christianity started, the Romans used to say, look at these Christians, see how they love one another. You can imagine in the world today where nations are fighting against nations, where tribes are fighting against tribes, ethnic groups against ethnic groups. When you see Christians from these different ethnic groups, they're not at war with anybody. They will not pick up arms against anybody. They are peace because they are brothers in Christendom. The relationship between a Christian is closer than the relationship of that Christian to a biological sibling who is not a Christian. In verse 22, it says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. There is a union, a unity in the Godhead. They don't argue over anything. They are in perfect agreement. They are three distinct personalities. And yet they are in perfect agreement. They are in essence one because of the way they are. And now the church is being brought into that union through baptism where instead of a trinity, I think I mentioned this before, what we now have is a quartet. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the church. Now the church and the Holy Spirit now stays on earth where the church is the visible part of the Godhead on the earth to do the will of the Father on the earth. The Lord Jesus said we should pray. Thy will be done on the earth as it is done in heaven. It is the role of the church, not just to pray the will of God to come to pass, but to be engaged actively in it as a united force. But we have a situation like we had in Corinth, where you are having churches praying against churches, where you are having churches struggling for visibility and for location. When you see those things happening, you know that that is the flesh. There's nothing spiritual about that kind of thing. In verse 23, Lord Jesus Christ continuing praying, saying, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. 
and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There's that union that brings us together as one in Ephesians chapter 3, speaking about the purpose of the church. In verse 10, it says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That was the purpose of the church, to show to principalities and powers in heavenly places the many-sided wisdom of God in putting people, Jews, Greeks, Arabs, Pythians, people they were called barbarians, put all of them together and they are living in peace and they have one purpose to do the will of the Father, to glorify the Father and to glorify the Son. That is the purpose. So when principalities and powers are looking, even though they are fomenting trouble everywhere and expecting nations to fight against nations, expecting people to fight against one another, when they come into the church, they are flustered because they discover that nobody in the church is picking up arms against anybody. Instead, the church is seeking peace in the place of prayer. There are many things that we are doing as a church today that is negating the very essence of our being baptized. So, baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit speaks of our acceptance, our acknowledgement of the authority and leadership of the Godhead over our lives henceforth. We are no longer going to be led by the world. That's what we are saying. We are no longer going to submit ourselves to Satan. Like I said at one time, we now come under new management, the Godhead. We are brought into the very essence of the Godhead. Let me also note that it says in the name, not in the names. So it's just one name, one essence for the three. They have no different essence, the same essence, the same character, the same nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one recognizing the place of the other. And no one struggling with the other. The Bible speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let this man be you which was also in Christ. He did not think it robbery to be equal with the Father. He didn't think it was anything to struggle about, even though they are equal in essence. But he humbled himself. Humility is a mark of the Christian. So by baptism, we are humbly deferring to the Godhead. And then we find the Godhead doing a very strange thing. Deferring to us. It is in deference to us that our prayers are being answered. And by the Holy Spirit, what is happening here is we are being told by the Spirit of God, pray like this. And as we are praying, the prayers are answered. So in deference to us, as it were, the Godhead is answered. So you find that the Godhead will do nothing on the earth unless we pray. So you see the Godhead giving us a place, but it's not supposed to make us swollen-headed. It's supposed to make us humble the more. This is what baptism seeks to achieve. We have come to accept and acknowledge the leadership of the Godhead, the headship of the Godhead over our lives. Secondly, through baptism, we are making a public declaration of our loyalty and devotion to the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are loyal. We are making a public or an allegiance to the Godhead that we are 100% loyal to you. We will not speak against you or do anything contrary to you. These are the statements that we are making when we come to be water baptized. We are saying, I am binding myself over to the Godhead to follow or to submit to the Father as the overall head, to submit to his word, to submit to his will, to submit to his desire, to submit to his instruction. I am binding myself over to the Son to follow, to submit to his leadership as the Son of the living God, to submit to him as my Savior. The one who saved me from the clutches of sin. The one that I'm indebted to. 
He is my Lord. I cannot argue with whatever he tells me to do. There is no disputing. I'm also saying that I'm binding myself over to follow and to submit to the Holy Spirit as my sanctifier. He's the one who sanctifies me. I bind myself over to be sanctified, to be instructed by him, to be directed by him, to be led by him. At Christian baptism, we are making a complete switch from the world. We are making a complete switch of allegiance from Satan to the Godhead. We are making a complete switch of our means of sustenance and livelihood and survival away from the earthly means to a spiritual means. That's what baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit seeks to achieve. It is not just something we recite. That is why, again, I continue to say you cannot baptize infants, even little children. You cannot baptize them. They must get to the place where they have that understanding because it must come from your heart and a willingness. Nobody can compel you. It's a willingness. This is what you are doing when you come to be baptized in water, which is but a token. And this is the real thing of what you are doing. You are acknowledging and accepting the Godhead. From now on, they are your leaders. Secondly, you are making a statement of allegiance to them. You are no longer allied to the world or to Satan. You are not interested in whatever they say. You will never follow them, no matter how well it may sound. These are the things that make one to wonder when I hear pastors who are quoting worldly leaders. I'm not saying that they are quoting spiritual leaders. No, I mean, they are quoting worldly leaders. I've heard them. Oh, Churchill said this. In church, Mandela said this. But I don't hear them talk about Smith Wigglesworth said this or that. And whatever they are said, even Smith Wigglesworth, whoever said it, must agree with the scriptures for us to be quoting it. Because we are speaking to the children of God, the heirs of salvation. We must not stand there hearing with worldly messages. Hence, because of these things, we are talking this allegiance, this binding ourselves over and saying this is who we are now. We are in essence a part of the Godhead. We have come into a union, a new life. We are now, as the church, we are now the members of the family of God. The Lord Jesus now says in Matthew 28, the last verse, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So, having been baptized, you are now going to be taught everything that the Lord has commanded that we be taught. So, you don't get water baptized and it ends. No! You now need to know what is it that the Lord is saying to you. Your prayer life must change. You must understand prayer not just as something you do because you want to ask God for something. No. Prayer becomes a lifestyle. It is a means by which you communicate with God. Not so that you can get something from God. So with this understanding, let's go ahead and answer two more questions, which we mentioned last week that we'll come and then we'll round up on Christian baptism. Now, the issue of sprinkling or immersion, which should it be? In Acts chapter 8, I believe we read that last week, but I'll just read a few portions there. Acts chapter 8, verse 36. This was Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, as they went down the road, don't forget they were riding on the desert road. They came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We discussed this last week. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. In Acts chapter 10 verse 47, while Peter was preaching to Cornelius and his party, they began to speak in tongues. And Peter made this comment in verse 47 of Acts chapter 10. 
Can anyone forbid water that this should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The point I'm trying to make here when we talk of Christian baptism, it is associated with water as in immersion. The word baptism itself denotes immersion. It is not sprinkling. I know we can debate this over and over and over again. There are the argument of what if you're in the desert where there's no water? You don't have to be baptized there. You know that you want to be baptized, but the medium is not available. That's understandable. And even if, for example, you sprinkled, you will still have to be baptized by immersion in water. I don't think there should be much of an argument here because the word baptism itself speaks of immersion. So Christian baptism is baptism by immersion. In some churches, I've seen some churches overseas, particularly in America, where they have a pool, they've built a pool within the church premises for the purpose of baptism. In fact, some are next to the altar. Water is important and we must be immersed in it. Sprinkling is not the issue. It is water baptism, baptized in water. The Ethiopian Enoch, even though they were traveling on a desert road, didn't mention baptism until he saw a body of water in the desert. And the Bible says they both went down into the water and came out. So let's not quibble over sprinkler immersion. Baptism itself means to immerse. So Christian baptism or water baptism is by immersion. It's scripturally stated. It's by immersion. The Lord Jesus Christ himself was immersed in water. He went to Jordan. John went to Jordan to be baptizing in the Jordan. And people came to him in the Jordan. The Lord Jesus Christ went to him in the Jordan. There are some churches that specialize in locating near rivers. Even though they are scripturally not churches. Biblically speaking, they don't qualify as the church of the living God. But imagine the effort they are making to be near a body of water. So that they can dunk people in water. Albeit, it's just dunking. It doesn't meet the need for baptism. Finally, we ask the question. Is there a minimum age to be baptized? We read this in Luke chapter 3 last week, 21 to 23a, where we spoke about how the Lord Jesus Christ was about the age of 30 when he began his ministry, which was when he was water baptized. The issue here is you have to be of a certain age. There is really no minimum age, but at least you must be past the age of accountability. You must be able to comprehend what is being said. You must be able to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. You must be able to comprehend the message of salvation enough to be convinced. The reason why this is important is because the Bible does not intend that anybody will backslide. So before you get into it, the Bible expects that you should know what you are getting into. That's why the, I think the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned that in Luke chapter 14. He said, who amongst you wants to build and does not first sit down to count the cost? Whether he's able to finish the building or not. Who is it that wants to go to war? And does not first take a census as his way of his men and armory and say, we can prosecute this war to his logical conclusion. Who doesn't do that first? So the Christian faith is like that. You are at war with the kingdom of darkness. Sit down first. Are you able to do this thing? If there is a willingness, the grace is supplied. So it is important that you are able to comprehend the message enough to accept it and say, I want to be a part of Christ. And by that token, I can now make a public confession through baptism that I am binding myself over to the Godhead. That I acknowledge their authority over me and no one else. I pledge my allegiance to the Godhead and to no one else. I declare that I am now, in essence, a part of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's Christian baptism. 
that's the statement that I'm making. I must recognize where I have come from. I think it's the book of Galatians, the Bible makes it clear that the heir to an empire, even though he's an heir, he will still be under tutors because he doesn't understand what he's entering into. So as long as somebody is not yet of age, there is no need for him to go to a baptism. Let him be of sufficient age to comprehend what he's doing. You wouldn't take a madman who does not have his sanity and say you want to baptize him in water. He might think you are drowning him and would be very violent with you. You don't do that. Beloved, Christian baptism is a scriptural thing. It first of all requires that you are born again. And then you have made up your mind that you are no longer going back to the world. You are out of it completely. And you are coming under new management. Then you submit yourself for baptism. And that baptism itself. I eat. The baptism is just a token that is speaking of an acknowledgement of leadership and authority of the Godhead over your life. Henceforth, nobody else has that power over your life. That's number one. Secondly, you are saying that your allegiance is to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Henceforth, no other one has your allegiance. Not even your flag, not even the flag of your nation. Allegiance is to God. This was the quarrel of the Roman Empire. They did not understand that people would not have allegiance to Caesar. And they told the church to pledge allegiance to the emperor. He said, no, my allegiance is to Christ. And the persecution began. Thirdly, I am binding myself over by the physical act to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit to be instructed, to be directed, to be sanctified, to become a part of the body of Christ. And by that token, of the Godhead itself in a quartet of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the church, where now as the part of the church, we become the visible part of the Godhead on the earth. Brethren, if we can get it right there, there's nothing that would be difficult for us on the earth. Remember, the early church went through persecution because it was the will of God. They were there as pioneers to show us what it means to come into Christ. That is not a tea party. My prayer is that we'll look at these teachings and trust that the Holy Spirit will minister to us that this is indeed the word of God. And as such, we'll direct our lives accordingly and seek him to lead us as we ought to be led. That we will be, as the church of the living God, a part of what God is doing here on the earth. Where we will hear from him, this is my will, and we'll pray the will through. We have a mighty weapon, we don't know. It's prayer. But only according to the will of God. The Bible says, this is the confidence that we have. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have the answer to our petition. But we do this only when we want something for ourselves. Selfishness. But God wants us to do this because he wants us to pray for something. So sometimes we are gathered and we hear the spirit of God say to us, I want you to pray for this. I want you to pray for this. As we grow in those areas, we become a part of the Godhead in bringing about change and transformation to the world. Until next week, God bless you.